Hi, friends. Welcome to Gaze Ahead. Today, I'm talking to Sean Casemore, who's an author, speaker, and a consultant for companies trying to develop and grow unstoppable sales processes. We dive into best practices for sales management, and our focus here is on the startup. Spoiler alert, it is never too early to build a sales machine, even if your product is pre-revenue. Hope it helps to demystify sales for the startup and helps you focus on what is important to scale your company. Enjoy. Sean, welcome to Gaze Ahead. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm excited to dig in and tell us your story. I want to know, you know, how did you come to be this speaker, author, et cetera, of multiple books? Well, I, I won't take you back too far. I often say that my uh, I focus obviously today on sales. I'm working with organizations, the teams, the executives in those organizations to grow sales and increase sales. But it started at the age of 11, where um, at that time, I recall I wanted additional clothing to wear to high school. And my mom said to me, uh, I buy you one pair of jeans every year and that's it. So you can imagine starting high school, getting into like even junior high with one pair of new jeans. Uh, so I had to make some money. So I started knocking on doors, offering to, to mow lawns, uh, shovel snow, whatever I could do. But fast forward, my real uh, career in sales began in my early 20s when I started to sell cars. And back in those days, there was no tech. Somebody would walk in the parking lot and you literally had five minutes to try and get to know them, understand what they're looking for, Hopefully you had an inventory. If you didn't try and figure out a way to build some rapport uh, and on it went. So I've had a varied career after that. I've worked in project management. I've actually worked in purchasing, if you can believe that corporately, uh, assistant plant manager, you name it, and all sorts of different firms. And um, at the end of it, then in 2009 or 10, uh, my wife was pregnant with her first firstborn. And I just wanted something different. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My parents were never entrepreneurs, but I had this desire to do my own thing. And all I could come up with was, well, I have a lot of skills and experience. Maybe I could help others. So that launched my company. Uh, when I quit, I, my wife wasn't working at the time. She was off and I was off. And uh, I remember sitting on the deck saying, so hopefully this goes well. So here we are uh, 13 years later. But yeah, it's it's been a journey and I've worked with every kind of company you can imagine from legal firms to insurance companies to manufacturers to you know technology based companies and uh, you know you you find and, and what i often say is i'm a sales process expert you find there's consistency not in the product or service being sold but in the process and methods you use so mm, okay awesome the book your most recent book is the unstoppable sales machine and we're going to dig in a little bit to the content there i know you have a few sure. other books so we'll put them in the show notes for the audience if they're interested let's talk about i want to dig right into and focus on startup sales so a lot of the time startups are spun out of a university there's a really cool tech idea and then they build a company around that technology rather than around product or market fit rather than it's like kind of a product driven centric strategy versus a market driven strategy. So let's talk about, you know, which is the better strategy or, you know, what's the right way to get to, to market? Well, so I'm sure I could tell you what I believe the right way is. And there'd be lots of people lined up to tell me I'm wrong. So, so mm -hmm. I'll say this. I'll say the the cheapest, most cost-effective way to enter a market with a product is to first understand what the market is looking for, which in turn allows you to develop, design, and launch a product that meets those needs. And in fact, as you start to market and sell that product, you can in turn use the language you've collected from the market 
to ensure your positioning in a way that is desirable to them. So I'm a fan of market first, but I realize the problem in startups sometimes is the idea might come from something you experience that you believe is out there in the market. And so you come up with a product idea, which is great. But then what you need to do is float that idea by a lot of people, specifically those you think would be interested in buying it to confirm that in fact, there is a market for this. Uh, because again, we, we tend to get some ideas. We get passionate about building the software, building the product. We dive into that. We might even get some seed funding to help us do so because others believe in us and that reinforces, hey, that we're doing the right thing. And then we go to market and there's nothing. It's crickets because we didn't fully assess the market. So if you're passionate about product or design of the product, if you will, that's fine. But you really have to assess the market need before you head down that path to make sure you're positioning it so that you can sell it when the time comes. Yeah. So don't wait. Talk to customers even before exactly. you have every a day. Every day. I, I tell it's funny, I give a lot of technology companies. I, I worked with one specifically that had this software that was meant to help with planning in very complex environments. And uh, you know, it was a great solution. But I said, and, and I said, who do you sell to? They said, Well, anybody, anybody that needs planning, we can help, and this is a better solution. And they would, you know, take this solution and kind of customize it a bit. So I said, well, you need to identify a market that needs that specific product. So we came up with a segment, which was like a, uh, in their case, more of a, a training segment of the market, companies that provided training that were scheduling in very archaic ways. And so we, I helped them set a plan to pursue that market. And I said, look, if, if you want to still go and continue to do this custom stuff to kind of feed your own need, that's fine. But let's focus on a market, build a brand and recognition within the market to become the known entity, the known product, the, the desirable product. Uh, so it was, it was almost a battle to get them there. But once they got there, things became easier because now you understand the lingo, the language. You don't have to customize everything you do. You make a product and you sell the product and you can scale much faster uh, in that way. So yeah, I, I think it's a mindset shift, but it's important, obviously. Yeah, it's very tempting to build a one product fits all, either software or product and think, you know, I can hit this market and that market and this market if I just build it to one size fits all. But you're touching on focus. So let's let's focus on focus. You know, to your point, scalability and focus are they come hand in hand. So how important is it for a company to focus? Well, I, I think you know, we were talking before uh, today, Melanie, but you know, it, it matters when you have any sort of business, whether that's a small business or a startup or a large organization. Focus is, is why corporations develop strategies. In essence, is to create focus. And the strategy is not to determine necessarily what you're going to do, is to identify what you're not going to do. So the, the purpose of focus for anybody at any size and any level is to ensure that you're streamlining what your intent is and where you're investing your time, money, and resources, which will ultimately allow you to get to where you want to go faster. And, and we were sharing examples earlier. I mean, in my business, it's me. It's a series of subcontractors that help me in different ways. And that's it. That's the business I designed. But every day, I've got to make sure I pare down and don't get pulled into doing things that are either too labor-intensive or I don't enjoy them, or maybe I'm not as good at them as others might be, because that's going to distract me from my focus, which is speaking with organizations, doing training and coaching. That's it. So it's important to identify what you're not going to work on or not going to focus on so that you can really put all your time and energy into that one thing, which will accelerate your results. Mm, the no-go zone, you know, yeah. like identifying a no-go zone and then being vicious 
viciously strict with your boundary as a startup. Yeah. That is a problem. You know, if you, yes. a customer starts saying, yes, you've got a product in the market and a customer over here says yes. And yet with a couple of extra features, you can go there, but it's not a scalable market. You know, you need to identify that quickly because all of the effort, time, resources, minutes, precious minutes spent on delivering that product for that one-off customer is yeah. times not spent on scaling. Yeah. Exactly. To your point, you know, does that, is that outcome of all of that effort something you can sell elsewhere? If you were plugged into the market initially, you'd know that. And I find that that focus allows you, it, it helps you sleep at night to know that you're turning down things that don't align with your focus because you invested the time and energy in the market up front. You continue to check in with the market, which validates your focus so that when you do step away from things or turn them down, you're not having a corner and going, oh my goodness, should I have done that? We, we really use that revenue right now. So it, it, you know, it all comes back to focus. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. In your book, you talk about death by a thousand cuts, some pros and cons of different sales strategies that have or have not worked in the past. And one of them really resonated with me where companies are taking a technology centric sales approach. Can you talk a little bit about what's good about that and what could be a problem with that? Because a lot of startups do kind of come to market with the flashy tech yeah. as their approach. Yeah. So, I mean, technology in sales, at least I can, I can speak uh, from experience. I mean, it's a tool. It's it's no different than having a smartphone, right? It's so you have to think of it in terms of once you develop your sales process, which is really essentially going through who's my market, how am I going to position myself, and on and on it goes. Once you've identified that, then what technology can assist you? So, for example, there's great technology out there that can support you relative to identifying additional leads. I mean, you can use LinkedIn Sales Navigator as a way to identify companies and contacts and, and all sorts of great things. But in, in too many cases, I think, and I'm going to watch my words here, but I think people focused in sales, and, and this might apply to startups as well, tend to have too heavily rely on technology. We, we, we want the technology to take the pain out of sales. And the pain is trying to find people that want to talk to you, and want to engage in potentially buying what it is and then negotiations and dealing with objections and all that stuff that that can be painful. I mean, I, I enjoy that pain. So I guess I'm, I'm different from some, but so we look for technology to take the pain away. And what we end up doing is letting technology lead rather than we lead and let the technology aid. And the problem with that is, although customers today, regardless of what you're selling, are seeking I mean, they're seeking ways to self-serve, you know, they're seeking ways to, to kind of manage the journey on their own. And you want to provide that. They still want to talk to a human. They want to know there's somebody behind the product or behind the technology, and they want to build a relationship. It's just in a different way. So we've really got to be cautious about how we use technology. And, and if technology is allowing you to step away from the sale and it's creating this belief that, hey, I don't need to be involved. I've built a funnel using you know this certain software that says they'll take care of all the sales for me. It, it's baloney. You, you need a, a pipeline or a funnel, absolutely. But you and other people have to be at strategic points in order to make sure that people get into the funnel. You address their concerns as they're moving through the funnel uh, and any questions that they have, and you ensure that they're happy moving out of the funnel. So be very cautious of, this is my kind of word to the wise, the technology companies that are producing the tech that support sales, they will be the ones that are telling you through all of their heavy marketing messaging to say, this is all you need. You can get rid of 10 salespeople, just use this. No, that's not the case. People still buy from people they know, like, and trust. That hasn't changed. How they prefer to interact, that's changed, right? They want to text over having a, a meeting, maybe. They want to meet at Starbucks instead of playing golf. Like That has evolved and changed. 
but people aren't looking for a technology only sales approach. You still need to have people involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People buy based on emotional decisions, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, you're, you're making a decision based on emotion and, and that is a human connection piece. Now there are, you know, softwares that can be sold online, et cetera, but for a tech startup that's trying to figure out product market fit, yeah. you know, you whether you do, you do, because yeah. you need that trusted advisor as a customer who's going to be like, I really didn't like this about your product. Or yeah. what if we did this together, you know, and, and if you can find those early customers that want to link arms with you and walk beside you, you've hit the yeah. jackpot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and whenever, and we, we talked about this earlier, whenever it gets to a point where you're looking for maybe seed funding or a venture capital firm to get involved. And they say, Hey, introduce me to some of your customers. You've got those champion customers who you built relationships with. You can say, absolutely. Come on. And they've actually been part of us improving this product or this, you know, whatever it is that we're selling, that's going to go, essentially that will allow you to be in a position where you're going to satisfy what the venture capital firm or the seed funding, whatever the case might be, is looking for, because that's confirming that you have identified your market. You do have customers and not only have the customers, but you're listening to the market. You're listening to your customers and making them part of the development. That's right. And I was speaking at the university alongside a venture capitalist on the weekend, and he used some language that really struck me. He said, we're not interested in startups who don't delight their customers. And I thought that was so wise, you know, not just appease and, you know, impress, but delight their customers. So it really has to be a customer focus when you're building a new product for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things you chat through in your book is around interrupting your buyer's existing patterns. With a startup, we have no choice but to interrupt our buyer's patterns because we're producing and and bringing and delivering something brand new. So what does that mean and how do we do that? So I guess the idea of interrupting patterns comes from the fact that regardless of what you're selling, whether it's a new product that, that, that that your buyer, your prospects never heard of, or it's something they have heard of and they're just not invested in or they're buying from somebody else, they have an expectation of how you as a salesperson or a person who is selling will reach them. So you'll send emails, you'll pitch them on LinkedIn. I mean, you know, you've probably had the experience. If I asked you, when was the last time somebody sent you a cold pitch on LinkedIn? My guess is it's within the last week, if not the last day. So we're all accustomed to those things. And therefore we, we learn to tune them out. We learn to ignore them. So interrupting patterns is more of a psychological premise where you need to realize that your customers and people you're trying to sell to, they have expectations of, and they know what you look and smell like, and they can see it from a mile away. So we need to do things differently from what they expect, not you know within the bounds of being professional, obviously, so that we actually stand out in the market and they're interested in engaging with us. So the, the example I share with, let's say, a, a, a historic company, like a manufacturer, where it's very much, we still meet with them, we go to their facility. I say, you know, Try using Vidyard or BombBomb to send a video message to a prospect to break up that call, email, call cycle uh, and to do something different from your competition. So ultimately, interrupting patterns is designed to get your buyers to pay attention, which is the first step in the sales process. You'll never see that in any sales process anywhere, but in mine, it is. You got to get somebody's attention before you ever have the opportunity to sell them. And that interrupting patterns is designed to get their attention. And you do that by asking yourself, what are ways that I can stand out 
amongst these customers, offer value to these customers. If you do have competitors, what can I do that is different? I share examples in the book. I mean, simple examples where I've had clients that have taken, used direct mail and they've, you know, mailed. There's one client told me a story of a gentleman sent him a, I think a, a crunch bar or chocolate bar of some kind. And it had a letter and it said, you know, or is it crunch time for this, that, and the other? And here's this chocolate bar. And then he sent another direct mail. It was another chocolate bar with another message. And this went on. He says, after about three chocolate bars, he said, I took the, the meeting just to tell him to stop sending me chocolate bars because I'm gaining weight. And I said, well, the bigger question is, did you end up engaging with him or his company? He said, they've been selling to us for the last 10 years. So, you know, we have to stand out and think differently. And if you're, again, if you're stuck, still stuck on, well, how do I do that? If you have competitors or even companies that you seek to be like, maybe a different product or service, but, but seek to be similar, ask yourself, what do they do and how can I do it different? Because you've got to stand out amongst the crowd um, in this day and age. Yeah. And for the really early stage companies that still are pre-revenue, developing product market fit, developing their service or their product, sometimes getting their attention is really hard to even mm -hmm. understand how they interact and how they, what they think and how they buy. And so you still need to figure out a way to stand out, even if you're just gathering information, whether that's a video message on LinkedIn being like, hey, you're the expert. I have some questions for you. Do you have 10 minutes? You know, yeah. something to for them to want to help you find out more about themselves. <laughs> yeah, You can send them. I mean, I've had clients send um, gift cards you can get from Starbucks and say, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to buy a coffee, but considering your distance, uh, what if I buy you a, a Starbucks, if you'd be willing to offer me a 15 minute you know, short call just to ask you a few questions. So uh, you can send them a gift card for lunch somewhere. I mean, anything you have to realize in the very early stages where you're not yet selling, you're just trying to get people's time. You've got to compensate them for that time somehow. And that doesn't mean send them cash, but stand out, be unique, do something that'll make them go, you know, this is, this is interesting. I need to give this person my time. And just a, a ploy to say, hey, we're going to develop the next big thing. It's going to change the world. Can we get an hour of your time? No, because everybody wants, I mean, again, how many people ask for your time, Melanie, on a regular basis for free advice and free ideas and all this stuff that, you know, you've got to say no to much of it because you don't have enough time. So you have to realize that's what you're market or your potential customers, that's their environment. So how can you compensate, stand out in order to get that time and get their attention? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes an ego boost is enough. Say you're really yeah. early stage yeah. and you don't have the cash to go send 20 customers some gift cards. You could just make them feel like they are the pros because they are. And maybe yeah. there'll be something in them that says, oh, something philanthropic. I want to help this company. You know, some way to stand out as a human not with not as a company, but as a human being and get their time. Yeah. yeah. And then and then later on when you're kind of pivoting and you've got products in the market, it's keeping those relationships and somehow making them feel like they, you know, getting back to them and saying, You changed the trajectory of my company. Thank you. Yeah. That feels yeah. good for people. <laughs> well, and your comments, Melanie, take me back to our our earlier conversation about what, you know, market, what is market? Is it identifying potential customers? Because maybe you don't know what those look like yet. Think of your market as your network, both existing and new. And what you want to be doing is building your network constantly. So what does that mean? It means going to events where your potential customers might hang out, might spend time connecting with them, not, you know, bending their ear for a half hour, but just introducing yourself, maybe, you know, just learn a little bit more about them and just build that network so that when the time comes, you need to reach out to people, you've got some people to reach out to who will remember you. Because again, you approach them in a different way. 
I know people that go to networking events and wear like bright red shoes or bright red glasses just for the purpose of interrupting patterns to stand out because then people remember them. But think about in your early stages, building your network, because that's what's going to be gold as you start to move forward with product development and assessing your market. Mm, It's so true. And sometimes a customer or a potential customer won't want to give you the time, but they might have a suggestion on who could give you the time. So again, building trust and making them feel like they want to help you either by introducing you to someone else or, you know, there's a lot of, and that's all through networking. It's just the human connection part. Yeah. What is networking? Networking isn't a brand out splash into the market. Networking is human eye contact. (laughs) Yeah. It's human relationships, right? It's like you, you and I spoke initially before this, and I know now where you live. I mean, we shared a little bit about our lives and we'll probably stay in touch. And now you're in my network and vice versa. And and what we're really doing here, the idea that the mindset should be is give to get, right? If I'm going to approach somebody and get to know them, what can I give? Maybe that's just something of yourself, something about yourself. People love to talk about themselves. So ask them questions, learn more about them without trying to overtake the conversation. You're giving them time to talk about themselves, which most people appreciate. So just have that give to get mindset and it can get you pretty far. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go a little rogue on us here and talk about the quintessential tech founder who who might be less of a salesy type personality, more of a tech type personality. Um, If I'm oversimplifying, maybe they aren't an extrovert. Maybe they are really into their product and really focused on the science. Do you have any tips for people that aren't natural extroverts, which I'm assuming you are and I am? Can you tell us a little bit about tricks for them who it may not feel as authentic to them to go out and be out there as a person? Yeah, so... Quickly on the the point of introvert extrovert, and I I am not a psychologist uh, by any way shape or form, but you know an introvert is some the, the way you define who you really are is an introvert is somebody who when they're stressed out, super busy, they really just want to be alone. They want to be alone to recharge and kind of do their own thing. An extrovert is somebody who wants to go out in public, right? When they're feeling kind of down or they want to get out amongst a bunch of people. So if you use that as your definition, I am an introvert. I always have been. Um, but I'm an, an introvert who learned the value of being an extrovert, meaning I, I can't build my network. I wouldn't be successful in sales if I didn't have a desire to connect with people to build relationships and, and, and such. So so I think even if you see yourself as an introvert, step one, stop saying that. Uh, step okay. two, realize that if that's the case and you expect to take a, you know your company, your product, whatever it might be to market, you really have to say to yourself, okay, I'm not going to sell this if I don't actually connect with people. So I'm going to go and start to connect with people. I mean, you, you can probably share the first time. I can tell you the story of the first meeting I ever had back in 2010 when I quit my job. It was the most awkward, uncomfortable. I'm sure that person walked away saying like, why was he here? I got this meeting through a referral and I didn't know what to do, what to say. It was brutal, right? To, to this day, I try to stay in touch with the guy, but I'm sure he still thinks, what a weird man. Like he comes to my office and literally I just talked with no intention or purpose and then left. And that was it. But how you learn is by continuing to apply and try and learn and test different things and assess what should I do differently. And, and that's that's how all of us get to the point we're at. So it might more be a matter of you don't recognize how to sell. You you want to sell your whatever it is you're putting together or whatever you've developed. You're just not sure how to. And so rather than say, well, I'm an introvert, so I, I can't do it. Uh, instead, say, well, look, I've got to learn to sell. It is a learnable skill because there is no schooling 
for sales. People that like to deal with other people, whether introvert or extrovert, a lot of times fall into sales and some are really good at it and they stick with it. So you can learn the skills. And I think if you're the CEO of a company, my bias is that the CEO is the number one salesperson, regardless of size of the company. From zero revenue to $100 billion, the CEO is the top salesperson. They should be. You should be able to put them in a room with somebody who might be a customer, and they should be able to sell. If they can't, I I don't know. I've got opinions I'll I'll say for another day on that. But that said, if you're a CEO and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I bring somebody in to sell on my behalf because I'm just not a salesperson, I kind of want to focus on the tech side, I don't think you should do that. Number one, you're creating overhead. Salespeople are not cheap. Good salespeople will easily cost you, if you include commissions and such, I mean, anywhere from 80, if you're super lucky, like you find somebody, they'll be probably more junior person at 80, all the way up to like 150. So they're not cheap. And if you don't really have a fully flushed out product, or you don't have a fully flushed out market, or you don't have leads for them to work with, many of them are going to be stuck because they come in with the idea, I know how to sell, but you got to show me the market, you got to give me the leads, and you got to show me your process. And if you haven't developed those things, you're going to be paying this person to sit around and most salespeople aren't programmed or comfortable with designing all that. Some are, many aren't. So that's why my bias is as the CEO, you should be the one to go out to start to sell the product, to figure out the market, to figure out the process that you develop. So then you can pass this along to your first salesperson and then scale from there. But if you leave this to a salesperson, they will never ever have the knowledge, the experience, the passion that you have for the product because they're just there to sell you're the one that's intimate with the product again, or whatever you've designed to bring to market. Therefore, you should be the one to get things started. And then you can design the sales team that you want to design ultimately uh, that will, you know, that you can scale upon. So I, I've just seen too many tech companies, startup companies, hire salespeople too quickly, be upset because they're spending a lot of money in the salesperson. They're not making sales and just get frustrated with the whole thing. But when you ask, well, what's the sales process? Well, I, I don't know, you know, well, why did you hire them? Well, I didn't want to do sales. Okay, well, I, like I don't want to do push-ups, but I still do them because they're good for me, right? <laughs> you, you don't want to sell. You still should do it because it's good for your company. So mm-hmm. understand that set aside your own personal desires. Sales is not going to hurt you physically, and, and you might just learn a few things. So I, for all of those reasons, I think it's just an absolute necessity that the CEO learn to sell. And I think even scalability-wise, if you're starting at zero, Again, it depends on the value of whatever it is you're selling. You know, a $100 piece of software versus a $50,000 piece of software, very different. But I think that CEO should be selling, should be the only salesperson until at least a million dollars in revenue, most times five to $10 million in revenue. Because again, depending on the value of what you sell, you should expect to get 1 million to 10 million per salesperson. Again, it varies dramatically depending on what you're selling. You know, the, the CEO should be, should be the top and head and only salesperson for quite some time as the business grows. Mm-hmm. And you yeah, can send I, all of your complaints about that statement directly to Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, like, especially when it's an early stage sale, like you're trying to, you know, exchange value. You give me cash, I give you this new product, right? And the new product isn't baked and you don't have a ton of referrals at the early stages. And so the CEO has to be the one to sell because they're personally, you know, invested and they believe in it. And they wouldn't be doing this job if they weren't, you know, every cell in their body kind of 
you know, aligned with what they're up to. And so that comes across, you know, human beings can see your passion, even if you're not an articulate salesperson that's polished, you still, your passion can come across energetically. And so I agree with you. The CEO needs to be really the lead of the sales. Now they might not have experience building sales processes. And that's where these resources like your books or advisors, mentors in the industry can help build the system. But yeah, yeah. being the head salesperson. And some people, I know, I, I know I'm an engineer and some people have this like view of sales. Like there's something in it that's like, ooh, a salesperson, you know? So yeah. let's unpack that a little bit. You know, you're as a CEO, you're a networker. You are yeah. a product developer. You are also your first customer acquisition, responsible for first customer acquisition. So if you don't like the word sales <laughs> or you don't like yeah. the feeling around being a salesperson, it's not about that. It's about developing a product that will delight your customers. It's exactly. And, and you know, to your point, I'm just, I'm working on my fifth book right now. And I was writing this morning about an experience I had years ago where there was this young lady and her job was a, a coordinator. So what would happen is a an email will go out. So there's a piece of technology that will go out to promote some different services the company offered. And it would point to her as the contact point. So uh, if somebody was interested, they would email her. She would then book a call with them to talk about the service and explain how it works and answer any questions they have. And then if they wanted to go forward from that point, she would connect with them with the kind of the subject matter expert under the service. And then she would follow up to make sure that that meeting happened. She would follow up the customer to see if they had any other questions. And if and when they decided we're going to proceed, uh, she was the one then that kind of coordinated the whole thing. So, you know, I said, Teepers, she has such an influence on our customers and the ability to sell these, these programs, these different services. And she doesn't even know it. She sees herself as a coordinator. So I sat down one day and I said, look, when people call you, you know, here's just a couple of questions. I, can you include these? Can you document answers over here? Can you ask for a referral? Like I just gave her like not even five different things to ask. And she said, stop, Sean, stop. If you're asking me to be in sales, I quit. I'm out of here. I'm not in sales. I have nothing to do with sales. I've never. And so <laughs> I, I'm like, oh my gosh, she is so a salesperson. So, okay. I said, no, no, this has nothing to do with sales. This is about <laughs> data collection. And I said, and then once we get that data, we can further assess it. She said, okay. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'll do those things. No problem. I'm like, it's such a cliche with the word sales, but I think that comes from my earlier experience, the the icky used car salesperson. <laughs> we've all had ex we've all had experiences with a poor salesperson that upset us, that maybe lied to us, or at least did not know the, the what the reality was and didn't bother to check. And it gets this, I think we carry around this bias as a result, but you know, sales is about helping people. I mean, the other day, what, what better job to have than to say, I'm going to help people solve problems today. And to that, that that's what gets me out of bed. I'm like, who can I help today? Right. So you have to just, again, change your mindset and not let past experiences define what sales is. But to your point, if, if you don't like the title sales, call yourself an account developer, right? Like, like give it a different title, call it what you will, but just know that the skills you need to use and apply our sales skills, you're selling, which is an exchange of value, ultimately, right? Exactly. And, and that ick feeling that we were describing earlier, I'm going to be a little bit blunt here, but get over it, you know, use a different title, but you are, you are creating value for mm -hmm. somebody who eventually you want to be your customer. So, yeah. you know, it's okay to use a different title, to frame it in your mind a little bit of a different way, but ultimately it's about sales. If you don't have sales, you don't have a company. Exactly.
Exactly. And you've got to be the cheerleader that's at the forefront of that. So let's talk about getting into the sales process. One of the things that I've personally struggled with as a CEO, as a salesperson within organizations is responsiveness. So we get really busy. We get a high volume of opportunity. You know, the biggest problem in my opinion in startups is time management. And so let's talk about the importance of responsiveness. You know, can you tell us a bit about what you've learned and and a little bit about what you wrote about? Yeah. So, and I'll take what your, your statement about time management, I'll say this will be shocking to anybody who's uh, out there listening, uh, but the biggest problem most salespeople have is time management because, and, and so let's start, you know, I'm going to start back at the beginning, but the purpose of a business, if you have a business, it's to add value, it's to help, it's to sell the product or service that you have. And if you can't do that, you don't have a business or at least not for long. <laughs> so ultimately you have to think about if customers and sales are the priority without which you don't have a business, you don't have revenue, you don't have a business then they have to take top priority. And I find in early days when maybe you're not that busy yet, you don't have your first customer, you're just kind of moving along and figuring stuff out and there's no real intensity. And then you get your first order. Um, And then all of a sudden we've got to get all this stuff ready. And then you get another inquiry and another inquiry and suddenly you're overwhelmed. You have to treat customers and inquiries or you know, if you don't want to call them inquiries, call them opportunities as the priority. They They rise above anything else. Um, And here's why. If you think about your experiences, the worst experiences most of us have today, it's going to our local bank. You know, there's four tills open, one person working, eight people lined up, and all those people can't use a bank machine, like whatever they're lined up for, they would rather use a bank machine, but they can't, right? So banks, airlines, telephone companies, I mean, it's just some of the experiences and the stories are, are painful. So you don't want to create pain for your customers because if you do, even though you might have a great product, eventually they won't buy it. So what we've got to think about is how do we respond quickly? Because that's what people expect. If you take a look at how we've all been trained through social media, the little red light, the notifications we get, we've been trained by technology to some degree that we expect everything now. That's what we want. And your customers are no different. So when they have a question, concern, an inquiry, you've got to be there to answer it. And you can't take a day or several days or a week to get back to them. Because when you do, what you're suggesting to them is they are not priority, which is the exact opposite of the message you're trying to send. So you've got to find a way to design responsiveness into how you deal with customers. And you can look at this in a few different ways. Early stages, it's easy. Because ultimately, you don't have many customers, you don't have many inquiries, boom, somebody comes in, I'm going to respond to them that day. My rule is I'm going to get back to you within 90 minutes um, because I know my my most intense day is when I'm doing training and I take a break every 90 minutes. And if you see me on break, I'm just checking my phone quick to see if anything come in. And if I got to take a call, I'll take a call. So let them know your rules for responsiveness and then follow them because you will set yourself apart from most companies just by being responsive. Again, think about all these experiences you have where you wait how many times have you dropped a contact information into a website and never heard back from them? Or it takes a week. Like mm-hmm. if you get back to me in a week, I'm gone. I'm on to the next thing. I'm on to the next priority or I bought from somebody else. So responsiveness is key with today's customers. The challenge becomes as you get busier, how do you scale that? Especially if you're the CEO and you're the one that's doing the selling, but you've got to find a way. So set some rules, 
right, around how often you're going to respond. Communicate those widely so that everybody knows. Make sure they're reasonable. And usually that's enough. See, the, the idea of responsiveness is not just as soon as I hear from them, I respond. It's to have rules that everybody knows. So, And specific rules, not vague rules. Not like, I'll try and get back to you in the next day or the next 24 hours, because that's ridiculous. You can get back to anybody the same day, right? By the end of the day, there's no reason why you can't other than the fact you've chosen to leave and not respond. So set rules, communicate them, apply them, and that can support responsiveness, which if and when you ever bump up against competition at some point will actually help you set yourself apart because most likely your competitors are not responsive. They're the ones that are on busy. Let me take a few days to get back to you. The last thing I'll say on this is that especially in early stage startups, if you're still developing a product, you might say, well, I'm nervous to get back to them because I don't have the product yet. It's not ready. I don't know what I'm going to tell them. Don't worry about it. Go back to the conversations about market. Remember, you know, that you're trying to build a relationship. Responsiveness supports that. But if you don't think you have the answer, like if somebody contacts you and says, hey, is that ready for me yet? I'd like to see this demonstration. Be honest with them. But you can frame it in a way that's positive. So rather than not get back to them, right? That's option one. Don't delay it until it's ready, which is a week later and they've moved on to something else or lie to them. Tell them, oh yeah, it's ready and then scramble and show them something that's not ready. It's not great quality. Or be honest with them and say, in preparation for a meeting, I need a couple more days. This is a few things I want to show you that aren't quite ready yet, because that's probably true. Now you've made them feel important. You've been responsive and they're going to be okay with waiting those few days you know, to have that meeting. So, so responsiveness is key to stand out, but you've got to find ways to systematize it ultimately in what you're doing and how you're interacting day to day so that you can maintain it over the long term. So important, such wise words, because we can be perfectionists as startup technology developers and not want to get back to them until we have something amazing to show them. Yeah. And that yeah. is actually quite damaging because to your point, you're not making them feel like you're Important. putting them first. Yeah. 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 So be honest, you know, and those customers that will walk beside you and those customers that will give you the extra time to show them, they're the ones you want to keep. You want to, you know, really, really keep close and make sure that they walk with you all the way to commercialization. Great. A bad advice. prospect, a bad prospect. So if they're the opposite of what you just described, they're not happy with that response. They want answers now. They're not happy with anything. A bad prospect usually makes a worse client. So always remember that sometimes it's okay to let them go. And, and there's a difference between a bad prospect and a difficult one. A difficult one just challenges you. A bad one is somebody, you know, and they are out there, right? People, individuals within other companies, potentially your customers who are rude, who are ignorant, who are not understanding. You know, sometimes you got to let those go because it's going to be, you're going to be better off to focus your time and energy on those customers that do want to partner with you. Absolutely. And as we all know, in the startup world, we don't get it right the first time it's in the market. We don't. And so you need a bit of patience and a little bit of grace. And, you know, you know, you need that customer who's like rooting for you a little bit and is going to help you develop a better product. So I yeah. love that advice about responsiveness. I think it's actually really inspiring to me because I've been caught up in the, well, we'll get back to them tomorrow because by then I'll have something to show, you know? No. Then tell them that. Then tell yeah. them that. Say, I appreciate got your message. Just finalizing a couple of things. We're excited to show you if tomorrow works, how about 10 a.m.? Like just, just get back to responsiveness isn't answer the question. It's reply or respond to acknowledge, right? That that customer has reached out to you. That's all it is. So true. So true. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about customer relationship management tools. You know, 
when is the right time to put a CRM in place? You know, I've heard about HubSpot, Salesforce, I've worked with startups that have used anything from an Excel spreadsheet to nothing to <laughs> Salesforce. So, you know, let's talk about CRMs. Um, when do you yeah. implement them and how important are they? So ultimately, I think your best bet, if you have any money, is to start quickly. So it's not start soon, start almost immediately if you can, because if you recognize that your network, which takes the form of a database, if you're putting it into an Excel sheet or a CRM, that that network or database has value. So what I mean by that is if you build up your database of potential customers, existing customers, past customers, and someday you decide to sell the company, the very first question or one of the first questions you're going to get is, show me your database of potential customers. And if you can't show them, if, if you've got them an email and some Excel spreadsheets and you didn't start tracking them until year five, you're already behind the gun. So there's a reason why you need to start soon. The, the ultimately selecting the CRM that's best for you is going to depend on your needs. So I am not a, I'm not biased towards any different CRMs. I've worked with all sorts of them. I will tell you the ones I work with most frequently are Salesforce. However, again, in my experience, Salesforce is good when you have a large sales team. But if you just, it's you or a couple of people, it's probably a little bit overkill. And, and many sales people, Salesforce people will tell you that. So it's, you're probably not at our level yet. Dynamics is very similar. Um, HubSpot is one I personally use because it's, it's small business friendly, but it can easily be scaled. And there's a ton of marketing tools and you can create your website through it. You can create landing pages. So if you want to automate some of that stuff, you can actually do it through HubSpot. I've used Pipeliner. I've used, I, I have some clients who are um, MSPs that use um, Autotask. So they use their ticketing system because it has a little CRM module. So anything is better than nothing. That's step one. And if you have nothing, start with an Excel spreadsheet and just keep the, the main information because all CRMs, the way you put information into them is you upload a CSV file, which comes from an Excel file. So at least if you start in Excel, you can easily upload it to whatever you want, whenever you want, but start early if you can. I mean, I think like HubSpot costs me $33 a month and I've got like the mid package, right? It scales quickly. The cost can scale as well, but ultimately start soon and just take your time. Don't read the, you know, just read the website and choose from there. Have a demo, right? And, and ask questions about here's where we're at. Here's what we're looking for. Here's the size of our team. And, and if you ask questions, most people will tell you, you know, really what their serum is best designed for, but you got to get by the initial marketing, the fluff and all that stuff and kind of get down to brass tacks. Say, here's what they need. Does it do this? The other thing I'll say is the prices that you, you sometimes see can scale quickly. So if, if you don't see prices posted online, it probably means it's a premium product. If you do see prices online, don't believe that, oh, wow, that's 50 bucks a month. I can afford that because you might find that's 50 bucks a month for two people. When you go to three, it, it doubles, triples. So that's why having a conversation into, you know, with somebody at the, the company you're assessing or preferably a couple of companies is the best way to know that this is the best solution for you from a functionality, features, and cost standpoint. Mm, great advice about CRMs. And at that early stage when you're doing your market research and you're you're talking to customers and you're trying to develop the product, it's a great place to put all the data in one place, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Because then what you can do is create, if you've got it in a CRM, you can create a launch email, right? Or, or a phase one launch, or you can, I mean, you can start to communicate with those people who are interested as you progress with the product, especially if they've shown an interest, which allows you then to capitalize on the initial relationship. Rather than I met you once, I documented your name and then you never heard from me again. What if a month later I send you an email that is just more of an update and say, here we are in the product journey. 
we've got this produced. We expect to launch on this date. Appreciate your interest and keep people kind of ready so that when you do launch, you've got people that are eager and excited about where you're going and you've got some initial leads to reach out to. And at the end of your market research conversation that you're doing at the early stages, make sure you end with an ask like, hey, can I reach back out or is it okay if I put yeah. you on our newsletter? You know, because we do yeah. have to have permission to email and to, to you know, in Canada. Out. Yeah, in Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the, and, I guess in, in UK as well, but yeah. 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 So it's, it's always good to ask. You can also though, here's, here's the, the caveat. If you're just keeping people informed, you're not trying to sell them something and there's a clear opt out on the email. You're not technically going against, and again, if you don't like what I'm saying, send all complaint emails to Melanie, but um, <laughs> the, the key about the castle or the legislation in Canada is you can't pitch people. You can't sell them stuff, but if you're just keeping them informed, best practices to ask, obviously, but keep in mind, don't, don't if you've got somebody's name, you're like, well, I'm just going to tell them where we're at. I'm not trying to sell them something. And you've got a clear opt out. You're, you're not, you know, you're not doing anything that's going to harm them. Uh, where people get upset is where they continuously get spammed with things trying to sell them and there's no way to opt out or they opt out and it doesn't work and they keep getting those. That's when people get upset. That's when you're at the greatest risk of kind of crossing those boundaries. Yeah. No, good advice. Good advice. Well, this time flew by for me. I've learned so much. Where can people get a hold of you or find you if they're interested to talk more? Um, probably my website's the easiest. Uh, it's my name, seancasemore.com. All sorts of resources there. I publish a couple blogs every month that talk about sales. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel, which is at Sean Casemore. All sorts of really sales training videos that people can uh, use and apply as they see fit. So, you know, and LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on. I've got a couple programs for LinkedIn on sales prospecting and sales strategy. So if you go to LinkedIn Learning, they're there. So those are probably the three ways that uh, you can learn more about me. And if you want to chat, you can always just send me an email. It's info at seancasemore.com. And Sean will check within 90 minutes and get back to you within 90 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Exactly. You'll hear from me within, <laughs> you know, you'll hear from me in less than 90 minutes if you're asking me a question. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you. I will publish where they can find you in the show notes of the episode. And Sean, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time today. And uh, I look forward to chatting again in the future. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. It was fun.